a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 87 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories of sportscasters and ways to improve in the business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. Also, if you would rate or review the show on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. It's a big favor for the show, and it really takes very little effort for anyone to do. So if you would do that, uh, click a couple stars, you know, four or five would be best. But you know what? Honest feedback is always appreciated. So if you really hate it, you know, you do what you got to do. But if you like the show, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated as well. It really helps the show to grow and Catch new audience members and new listeners. When the last episode with Charlie Steiner was released, I was in the middle of covering 14 games in four days. Play-by-play for two Minnesota State High School tournament games, immediately followed by 12 games in three days for the Division III Junior College National Tournament for men's basketball. I did play-by-play for six of those 12 games and acted as the color analyst for the other six And it was fun, but it was exhausting. It really is amazing what a difference a few weeks can make. That tournament ended up being my final basketball broadcast assignment uh, with my voice on the air for the year, which wasn't totally unwelcome. It was that time of year where I'm always ready for a little bit of a break. But this last week, as mentioned before, uh, with the exception of maybe writing for my blog, I completely closed myself off from the broadcasting world. No blueprint practice, no networking calls, nothing. Instead, I focused on spending some time with my wife, who I had barely seen the last couple weeks, watching March Madness, and just recharging after what's really been a uniquely challenging football and basketball season. And I don't want to sound whiny, because everything I'm about to say... I brought on myself by making the calculated decision to leave a full-time, a well-paying job to just uproot our lives and move to a major market for more potential sportscasting opportunity. I had an idea that, you know, in a perfect world, everything could just fall into place when I moved. Of course, it's not a perfect world, and that was never a very realistic expectation. And while I had hoped that it would turn out that way, I didn't deep in my heart, believe that it would be that easy. And it, it has been tough. I had to spend three and a half months wearing an orange apron in the flooring department at Home Depot. I was really excited to get back into radio full-time, but as a commissioned salesperson, building a list of business from scratch is another slow grind that requires planting a lot of seeds and then patiently cultivating those seeds to blossom before you get the financial reward 
of a commission salesperson. And I'm getting there. Things are moving in the right direction on that front. I closed two pretty sizable annual agreements just last week and feel really strongly that a few more are coming in the very near future. But lastly, while I always want more, it would be really foolish of me to look back at my first fall and winter sports season here and not to realize that I've gotten some excellent opportunities. I covered games in the Minnesota State football and girls basketball tournaments. I dove headfirst into broadcasting swimming and gymnastics championships. And of course, I've had regular high school and small college work covering football, basketball, and volleyball. And coming up in a few weeks, whenever all this snow finally goes away, I expect I'll have some similar level baseball and lacrosse play-by-play opportunities. It's been fun. There's been challenges. But in the end... It's always fun to just reflect on how the season has gone at the end of it. But I do have one more really cool freelance gig that I've kind of kept in my back pocket. I didn't want to talk about it too much because I didn't want to jinx it. But I'm really thrilled to have managed to get on as a production assistant for Westwood One Sports at the Final Four this year in Minneapolis. Obviously, I won't be anywhere near a live mic, but the opportunity to be around one of the best produced radio broadcasts in the nation will offer tremendous insight into what it takes to make it at the highest level. It'll be a great networking opportunity to introduce myself to top talent, producers, and decision makers at both the local and national level. And maybe most importantly, man, it's the final four. It's just flat out cool. I got into broadcasting because I wanted to keep going to basketball games after I realized I wasn't ever going to make uh, the varsity squad on my college basketball team. So to say that the Final Four has been a bucket list event for me would be an understatement of epic proportions. I'm really excited to take a part of it. It's five days of work. It's a lot of setup. I'm sure I'll be bringing a lot of lunches and carrying a lot of equipment and doing all of the scrub work, but it's going to get me in the building for the final four, and they're going to pay me to do it. I certainly didn't tell them this in the conversation, but probably would have done it for the price of a credential into that building for the final four. It's going to be quite an opportunity, and I'm really excited to tell you guys about it. And I'm sure I'll write about it too when all is said and done. But anyway, you didn't come here to listen to me ramble for too long. So I will get to the main event, which of course is Brian Anderson, the TV voice of the Milwaukee Brewers. He also works for Turner Sports, play-by-play announcer for NCAA, NBA, MLB, and PGA. He'll call this year's NCAA tournament games through the region finals. And Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be with you. Excellent to have you here. And, you know, since you're, we're recording this the afternoon of Selection Sunday, and it's fitting that I just got done broadcasting a full 12-game tournament of the Division Three for the NJCAA Junior College Tournament. And I just wanted to see... You know, how your first time doing a tournament that had, you know, eight to 12 games in two or three days, what was your first lesson learning how to survive that experience? <laughs> well, from a, from a technical standpoint, mechanical standpoint, you know, voice control, breath support, those are always the most important, the important 
you know, pieces to what we do as play-by-play announcers. So, um, I, I think my first experience doing, um, a run of games was actually in the year 2000. I went over to Sydney, Australia for the Paralympics and they, I actually called six wheelchair basketball games in one day. And this was a kind of a, a monumental breakthrough in uh, digital streaming. It was the first ever webcast, believe it or not. So take you, you know, think about 2000. Uh, this is the the Paralympics, which followed the Olympics. Uh, we all went down there. and Yahoo Sports put this event on. And so I remember getting the schedule. And, you know, the first six or eight days was track cycling. And you know, we were on the air. Basically, imagine the first iteration of streaming. So we were on the air all day. Uh, and it was also being broadcast locally over there on uh, Channel 7 in Australia, which is the big sports network in Australia. So... Um, it, it, it taught me a lot, you know, you can't, when you're doing six games in a day and I've never done that many games since uh, I've done four, of course, at the NCAA tournament. Um, but it, it did teach me a lot about preparation and voice con- command and control and not to waste your, your voice, your words, uh, when you're not calling the game. So very minimal talking and around those games, but you know, the way you prepare is different too. You, you can't go as deep as you want to, um, you're not going to be able to take it 10 layers deep. Like I, I, I say, um, you're just trying to get the names, the rotations, the programs, you know, the teams just organized at a very surface level. Um, and then you start to build stories if they advance. So that's a hard thing to overcome because when you do a game in the regular season, you're pretty, you know, everybody has their own rhythm and their own habits and, you know, I might I might have a couple of nuggets on every player that's in the rotation. You know, sometimes that's ten players, sometimes it's eight. You know, so you're you're going to have a few things, then you're going to go really deep on three or four. You might you might have some backstories, and you're going to talk to players. There's just really not time to do that. You're really just talking to coaches and trying to get a general sense of what their story is and what their flow is. Their rotation rhythms and all of those various things and then that's it then you just let it fly and call the game and then if they advance that's when you are allowed to go deeper which feels more comfortable for me and something that you know when when we do games on a on a one-off that's how we would normally do it so it kind of changes everything you know when you're doing multiple games did you ever have a situation where you were struggling with with maybe losing your voice a little bit after that, that uh, helped you to learn those initial lessons on how to be quiet in and around games uh, going forward. You know, I never, I never have, and I'm, I'm very thankful and I'm very lucky. Uh, early in my career, uh, I read a book called "Change Your Voice, Change Your Life." It's still out there. You can go check it out on Amazon. I mean, it's a, it's a two-day read maybe even a day if you plowed through it. It's a really thin book called Change Your Voice, Change Your Life. It was written in the 80s. It was a guy who was a doctor, a voice coach and doctor who um, worked with a lot of singers, including Lionel Richie and Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks had a lot of voice issues in the 80s. Um, And he he worked with her. She she actually 
um, helped put him on the map. And so anyway, I read that book when I was first starting out in the mid nineties calling minor league baseball, you know, I would work every day for six months pretty much. And once I read that book and learned how to put the right kind of air and know what my voice is, that's the first thing and know how to put it in the mask. Um, that really changed it all for me. So if you're squeezing your voice down, if you're bearing it too far, or if you're up in the nasal regions of it, you, you will lose it because it's, it's a strain on the muscle. The muscle can't be strengthened if it's not in the proper place. Right. So there's a series of exercises and I didn't have this deep and this full of a voice when I first started, it was very thin. I had Texas draw kind of talk like this, you know, that's kind of my, my, the way I spoke. And so I learned how to breathe through it and get to my natural voice. Um, once I did that, I was fine. The only time I've ever lost my voice, uh, was cold related and it was during a golf tournament and I wasn't, I was able to do the broadcast, but I wasn't able to, uh, to punch it at all. So only time I've ever had any voice issues was, was, uh, if I've had a cold or a flu, uh, but never due to fatigue. And I, I do, I credit that voice, um, uh, that voice book a great deal. Change your voice, change your life. It was a, it was a game changer for me and certainly changed my career, which I guess changed my life. So it lived up to its billing. What specific advice or exercises did you take and what specific issues did you need to correct early in your career? Well, breath support's the main one. I mean, I think everybody goes through that. I get a lot of emails uh, from young announcers now and, and, you know, they're, they kind of see themselves at the end game and how can I get to the end league baseball broadcasting or anything like that. And I'm just, I try to back them down and it's really the process and really the, the instrument that you need is your voice. And so the most important piece of that is to strengthen your voice and create new rhythms. Um, anybody who's taking any voice lessons for music, singing lessons, these would be, uh, these would all be common theories. Um, for me, it was a couple of things. Number one, warming up the voice. So um, I do it. It's a little awkward to do it in front of people. But what you do is uh, there is a position that your voice can get to that will actually rattle your nose and make it itch. And so that's kind of like, kind of like, you know, you <laughs> you do the motorboat thing, you know, it's like, uh, that's how, you know, your voice is in the right place. So that was a mechanical thing that actually helped me think about where is my voice? Is it too deep? Like too low in my belly diaphragm or is it too up in my nasal area? So when you find your place, when your nose itches, when you're doing the whole motorboat, then you know, you found the right spot. Once you find the right, right spot, then you can uh, add volume to that and get as loud as you want. So like in the car, I may do it, or if I'm on the way to a game or, uh, maybe right before the game, I'll hit the talk back button in a loud arena and I'll just, I'll just do it. Like, I'll just kind of do that. I mean, sounds weird, but that helps me know where, where it is. Like it's in the right place, you know, if that makes sense. I don't know if any of this is making sense to you, but, um, uh, this is, 
the first part of that is to know where your voice is exiting from. And they call that the mask. And then the other part is you have to support that with air. And so I think the biggest thing I learned was when you, and again, singers would know this, but the conventional wisdom is when you take a breath in, right? Then you you would think your stomach would go in, like suck it up, you know, suck in the air. But it, actually it's just the opposite. If you fill your diaphragm full of air, your stomach will actually go out. It'll have that look to it. And so, because obviously it makes sense, right? You're filling it with air. And it took me a while to get the rhythm of that, the muscle memory of that even. And, but once I did, now it becomes a habit. So you practice that, you practice like putting air in the diaphragm, right? And like I just did, you, I, you may have heard me just sniff, right? So between calls, uh, when you know, just like between notes, when you know maybe like there's a moment and your analyst is speaking, you just pop the air in that diaphragm and now you're ready. So it's like, you know, there's a, okay, it's now Michigan's ball. Uh, you know, Xavier Simpson, drive to the lane, breath, and then you're ready to bang a call out. And that has allowed me, now that is like a lot to think about. You don't want to do a game having to think about all that, but you do the exercises to get the rhythm of it. And once it becomes a habit, you don't think about it anymore. So the air support with a full diaphragm that then pumps air into a voice that's in the right place in the mask, and you won't lose your voice. You won't have fatigue because the muscle is performing well. It's, it's where it's supposed to be. You know, your, your form is good. If you're, if you've ever lifted weights, you know, if you've done squats and you lean over, you're going to hurt your back. But if you're on a base with your feet under your hips and your hips under your shoulders and you're square, then the muscles can activate. So it's the same principle and the voices, you know, that muscle in there is important for what we do. So that's really deep in the weeds there. But that's, uh, that's kind of where it all started for me back in the mid nineties. And it truly did, um, change my whole perspective and it changed how I was able to call games and be able to call four NCAA tournament games in a, in a single day. And still in the last game, in the last minutes, be able to really punch a call and get loud and get over the crowd or get through the crowd, better stated, um, even in the last game of the day. That's the joy of the podcast format. We can go deep into the weeds because <laughs> everybody who's listening, besides maybe my parents, wants to know how to how to sound better on the air. So uh, excellent stuff. Well, I, you know, here's the thing. Here's the, and you you know this too. I'm sure you've been through it, and I and I went through. It. We're all we put ourselves on a plank when we do this job. So we're out there, and we're we're in a public forum and we're kind of exposed, you know, and it's, it can be an uncomfortable place and we're all a little bit sensitive, you know, and as we grow older in the industry and we continue on, we try to be less sensitive, but you know, the voice and the volume and the tone and the pitch of your voice, you should be thinking about that as a singer would, because that builds the whole piece, you know, as we go through, if you think about it in film, right, frame by frame by frame makes the movie, right? So if we're going through a game and 
frame by frame is uh, the play, like the plays or in baseball terms, we go half inning to half inning or basketball possession to possession. You want to be able to build on that. So I took the mechanics of the voice and of the breath support into more of a content related scale, which would be for me was always like a, a, a one through 10 scale. And a one would be the quietest, softest, um, early round golf tournament, meaningless shot out of the fairway. He's got a two iron versus a 10, which is the loudest buzzer beating NCAA tournament, NBA playoff winning game. Um, that would be a 10 call. So, and then there's the whole scale in between. So you have all the voice mechanics and the breath mechanics, and then you add the content of your voice and, and the volume and the pitch to be able to make that equal to what the moment is. And those are numbers in my head. I'm saying this deserves a six. This deserves a seven. If he makes a shot here and Wisconsin wins a game on a buzzer beater to send him to the Sweet 16 over Xavier, I'm going to give it a 10 call. I'm going to I'm going to yell as loud as I can yell or speak as loud as I can speak through the crowd here and then lay out. So I'm kind of making those determinations as it goes. What does this deserve? For example, I did the Big Ten tournament this past week and there were some moments in the, in the, in those games, but those are big 10 tournament quarterfinal round moments that don't deserve a 10, you know, they're never going to deserve a 10 unless it is the craziest set of circumstances, you know, half court shot, maybe something like that, but there's nothing in a quarterfinal round of a big 10 tournament that would deserve a 10 call. There may be some that deserves an eight and a nine, but you want to be able to hold that back a little, because if that same scenario presents itself to win a national championship, then you want to be able to get, have another place to go. So um, I'm always thinking about what does this moment deserve? And so it's just a really rapid fire thought um, coming back from a commercial or even in the middle of the call as a player may be dribbling up or a batter may be striding to the plate. Um, you know, I can remember calling an NLCS game. It was game two Dodgers Cubs and uh, Justin Turner was coming up, you know, and, and there was like this feeling that if he does something big here, I'm going to give it a 10, even though it wasn't a world series. And he hit a walk off home run in a major league baseball playoff game. So I got to the end of my range and so if you think about all those things and you kind of make it your habit, then it becomes really natural um, to do. And then you can evaluate it is the final step. Once you make those calls, then you go back and you listen and evaluate it. Did, it. did that moment deserve, was my analysis of that moment correct? Did it deserve an, a 10? Did it deserve an eight? Could I have given it a little more juice? So that's the whole process really aside from everything you're saying and all the content you're delivering and the calls you're making, the words you're using, the vocabulary, it's that, that whole process of mechanics, the thought process of how loud you're going to be with it or what kind of intensity you're going to attach to this moment. Cause these moments live forever. Um, you hear these calls and 
your voice is married to it. So you're the soundtrack of that, like it or not. And that's the pressure of it. So it's, it helps you if you have at least some kind of scale that you can say, I feel like this is an eight right here. This is a really big play. If he makes a shot or a great defensive stand, I'm going to give it an eight treatment. Um, so that's, that's kind of the uh, neurotic way that I think about, that I think about broadcasting these games. You've mentioned a couple times that singers will know what you're talking about. Do you have any musical ability? Just a side tangent. No, I don't. I'm, I'm a terrible singer. My daughter's really a great singer and has a beautiful voice, but I don't have that skill whatsoever. Um, but every singer and every artist I've spoken to, I know a lot of you know, rock and roll singers and um, you know, just coming across guys uh, – artists through the years they we speak the same language on that you know we speak the same language when they ask me i just did a podcast as a matter of fact with uh, rhett miller of the old 97s and he was asking me those kind of questions you know and it was that he goes through the same processes uh when he prepares to sing or if he's got to play three shows in three days uh, maybe in a smoky bar or whatever it may be you know so those are all things that you think about, not to mention the, 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 the health of your voice. And I didn't mention that, but, you know, I drink green tea. I drink like hot green tea. Something warm on your voice is always good. During an NCAA tournament, I've, I've literally had a cup of hot water there um, just to sip on to just warm the voice. You know, never, never go cold, never eat a bunch of ice cream before you, on, you go on the air. I learned that the hard way in the minor leagues. I used to throw down the driller chillers in Tulsa, and uh, you couldn't get it together <laughs> to speak. <laughs> so, but I think, you know, how you treat your voice and the way you would warm it up. But during, during games, Vin Scully used to always have a bag of uh, gummy bears next to him. And he would, you know, suck on a gummy bear, chew on a gummy bear, and, uh, for me, it's like a cough drop in a green tea, just because green tea is a little healthier, but any kind of warm tea uh, would be fine. And that, that always kind of helps you helps you through it, I think. The other, Which is what a lot of singers do. The other and the last question I'm going to ask about uh, covering a tournament and kind of taking care of everything is uh, the 12th game maybe wasn't an issue for me because it was a national championship game that – brings energy on its own but game 10 and game 11 and game four every night it's tough to keep the same amount of energy that you have in game one how do you make sure you have the appropriate energy uh, when you're starting to physically get worn out well it gets back to having some sense of scale right and if you can detach um what you're feeling and thinking and fatigue and all that that's setting in to a tangible number back to that scale, the one, two, one through 10 scale, then you're able to get there because, you know, at this point of the game, for me, I know what an eight, I know exactly what an eight call feels and sounds like. And I can say this, this moment right here, even though it's the fourth game of the day and, um, you know, seven and eight hours into this, this deserves an eight and I'm going to give it an eight. So put the breath in, let's go, let's call it, you know? So that really helps. Um, 
and then I think you have to get lost in the now when you're doing a stretch like that. So whether it's preparation. So the preparation for next week starts for me as soon as the selection Sunday happens. So we'll know, we'll get an email right before selection Sunday saying your, your team, which is this year for me, Chris Weber, Ali LaForce, Scott Cockrell producing, Andy Greathouse directing, your team will be in this city. Okay. So I know when I'm watching the show, I'm, I know what city I'm going to, and now I'm going to find out the teams, the eight teams that are going to be going to that city. Um, once I get those teams, that starts the whole process, right? That starts the prep, and there's a rhythm to that, and you have to make sure you're not getting yourself into a position where you're you're spending so much time on prep, you got nothing left to call the games. So that's a prep at so Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday is all prep at home or wherever you are, hotel. Then you're flying to the city or driving to the city. And now you settle into that. Now you go to the practices, which are 10 practices or eight practices, I should say, 10 hours of practices on the Wednesday or the day before. And then you have the four games, eight teams on the Thursday or Friday. So you kind of know the rhythm at this point. I do uh, because I've been doing it for a while. And so I know like when to compartmentalize. And so to your question, when you're sitting there in the middle of the fourth game in the second half of the fourth game, and it's a 20 point, 30 point blowout, you know, you have to be ready to deliver this information that you prep for. Right. So that's kind of like taking the test. And that's the easy part for me. Getting to the games is like, that's the gorilla off the back. Um, once you get to the games, it's, you've done all the prep, you've done all the studying, you've memorized what you need to memorize. Now the games are fun. You know, if you've got it buttoned up and you know who the players are and you understand, um, what, what's at stake. So then you use your scale and you just let it fly. So the games are never an issue never for me they haven't been um the hardest part is sitting through you know the fifth sixth seventh practice and you're eight nine hours into the practice prep day when it's literally coming at you an hour at a time there's a new team on the floor there's a new sid sitting next to you there's a new coach coming to you there's new players and you're just rinse and repeat eight times um, you know, and there's time that is about 15 minutes in between each. So it ends up being about a 10 hour day and you're trying to gather as much information as you can in this hour and ID players. That's the one that mentally just beats you down. And so turning that around from that long practice day into the next day of calling the games, that's the easy part, <laughs> but you don't want to leave yourself so empty that you can't get it turned around. You have to know when it's time to go to bed, you know, cause you can keep going down the rabbit hole of prep forever. I mean, there's, you're not with these teams every day. Like a radio announcer would be a local radio announcer. They're going to know their teams way better than you'll ever be able to know, but you're trying to get the big stories and get the names and who, who's important. And it's the most important games of their lives. So you have to give it that kind of treatment. Well, I think that's enough of a deep dive into tournaments. We've gone for almost 25 minutes talking just about <laughs> that topic. But um, I want to get a little bit into your career now. You went from 
playing college baseball as a catcher for St. Mary's in Texas to the voice of the San Antonio Missions, getting rich, making $25 a game. Uh, What was the process of picking up that first job in the minor leagues? Well, I was extremely fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, for sure, because when I went to St. Mary's, I transferred there, so I'd gone to another university to play, and my school at that time, and I was more than content to stay there, but they decided they wanted to go the Division Three route. They want, they were dropping down to Division Three, and I still wanted to play at a higher level and had a scholarship opportunity to go to St. Mary's in Texas. Um, and really not really knowing what that was going to be all about as far as a life changer for me. But once I arrived at campus at St. Mary's, we shared the field. My college team leased our stadium to the double A minor league baseball team in the Texas league, the San Antonio missions. So it was really cool that we played in this minor league ballpark, which is our home park on our campus. The professional team, the double A team leased this park every summer. Um, so I, I got to know those guys really well. And then at the same time, prior to the NBA having their own facilities, the San Antonio Spurs would do a rotation of training sessions at the three colleges in San Antonio. It was St. Mary's, it was Trinity, and it was Incarnate Word. And so the, the Spurs, the NBA team in September, uh, would do their training camp. Um, at my university. So here are two professional outlets. I just went there, you know, to go to school and play baseball. And I'd made a decision. I wanted to maybe pursue broadcasting um, at that time. And here were two professional outlets that I could tap into. And I did and ended up working as an intern for the Spurs while I was in college, Um, made great connections with the missions, the baseball team while I was there. So we would help them pull the tarp and we would throw batting practice uh, when they would arrive and help around the ballpark, whatever we needed to do, We'd work on the grounds, you know, field maintenance. So it was great. And I got to know the guys in the front office, minor league setups are, you know, really small offices and you get to know everybody. And by the time I graduated from college, um, I had great relationships with these guys and they asked me if I wanted to continue on with them and be a part of their broadcasting department and help out where I could. And I had some engineering um, background. I did a lot of handheld camera and engineering work, audio. So they, they thought there was enough skill in there to kind of serve in a lot of different roles. So that's what helped me get started in, in the baseball broadcasting world. And I was there for nine years and, you know, I worked for the Spurs that entire time, either as a cameraman or a tech op, and then eventually as a, as an announcer, as a sideline reporter with the Spurs, you know, which was a big transition for me to go from behind the scenes, doing all these jobs to make a living in the non-baseball season, baseball off season, uh, to being able to now be on the air in the NBA with the Spurs. And so it was a very unorthodox route, but uh, I had some great people there that put me under their wing, including Mike Kikarillo of the Spurs and Roy Acuff of the Missions, who was the broadcaster there at the time I started. So it was, um, it was a trial by fire and, you know, it took me a while to kind of get to the point where I was actually legitimate on the air. 
I mean, I thought the rhythm and the content was always good, but back to the voice quality and understanding the schedule and all that, it took a while. So that was really my introduction into professional broadcasting at that time. I had two choices coming out of college. I had two offers. I could have been uh, a baseball scout. I had an offer from the Cincinnati Reds to go to scouting school and go into that realm, which my brother is a scout now and was a was a player. He played in the major leagues. He was still playing at that time. But that was always something that we thought we may do. But I chose broadcasting instead and glad I did. So you mentioned at a certain point you became the sideline reporter for the Spurs. That may be the scariest position in sports media, (laughs) uh, just knowing the reputation of the way that Greg Popovich uh, treats questions that he deems as not up to par. Just give us some Popovich stories from your time uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. Well, remember, so I'm around the team a lot from the years 1992 while I was still in college through the 1999 season when I made the official switch from tech to talent is what they would say. So from that behind the scenes to in front facing in front of the camera. So I had a long relationship with all those guys and I was there when, when pop, my first year pop was an assistant coach and then he left. Uh, he was with Larry Brown. Then he left. They brought in Jerry Tarkanian and didn't work out. John Lucas didn't work out. Uh, they brought in Greg Popovich to be the GM. So he had returned now from the Warriors and he is now a young GM, young up and coming GM who hired Bob Hill as his head coach. Uh, everybody who would follow the NBA would know the story. The, uh, David Robinson got hurt. The Spurs had a god awful season. Um, they were able to land Tim Duncan in the draft, and then Pop became the head coach and GM. So that was like I was there in the middle of all of that transition in the late '90s, and then you know, of course, '99 was their first championship which was my first year on the air the, the following year um, uh, was full-time. The, the 99 year, which was a half season because of the lockout, was my first introduction into Spurs television. And I actually did both. I was kind of a fill-in reporter that year and then full-time the next year. So all the stuff that popped is known for now and it's kind of funny and it's a whole bit and how horrifying it is. That was, he was doing that to me before anybody knew about it. And it was, it was, it was scary. And, and he was exactly that way. But at the same time, he helped me be so much better because you could not bring the weak sauce. (laughs) You had to ask a question and it had better be something relevant and i've been chewed out by pop many times especially in the early years it probably took me two years to even gain his trust or even like i don't even know if trust is the right word but the idea that you know he's actually gonna acknowledge anything i ask him and that took a lot of work so as grumpy as he would be on the air uh during a game because he's so into the game he was just the opposite away from it. So in the hotels, on the plane, on the buses, um, just being around him, you know, he really took an interest in me and would help me out. And he would invite me to practice. You know, he was not allowing 
hardly anybody into practice in those days, media wise. It was just me and really the play-by-play guy at that point, uh, the radio play-by-play announcer. And so that was a really great experience for me to be able to go to a practice. And, you know, and I, I showed up on non-game days and went to practices and I just watched and listened. And that gave me great context to be able to ask better questions and to get the real story. Um, a lot of what happened in practice was off the record. So I kind of had to know what that line was. And then a lot was on the record. And I would always ask, can I use that? Can I use this? Um, you can't give away strategy, but you can give away themes and you can give away perspectives. So that really taught me a lot. You know, I'm, I'm in my twenties, my late twenties at this point, and I've already done a ton of minor league baseball games as a play by play announcer. So that was really impactful and I wouldn't be where I am or wouldn't be at the level I'm at without that experience of having to get, get beat down, um, get yelled at, get prepared try not to be yelled at today um, because of your preparation. So those were valuable years for me. So I, I was in the Spurs wheel as an announcer for, for nine years. Um, and I'd been with them. So I worked for them 12 years. And uh, the first four of those, four and a half, three and a half, was as a behind-the-scenes cameraman, audio engineer, uh, graphics, things like that. So I had been around them a long time, you know, and, I still, and I saw the whole rise of the Spurs, uh, build their whole culture, go into their championship pedigree. And I was there until I left for Milwaukee to go to the Brewers. You know, I was a part of four of their first five NBA titles. How did you, I guess, did Popovich ever apologize for being so harsh to you when you were just chatting? off the air no. or non during no, no to the, to just the opposite actually he'd say look you've got a i remember one scene uh I, just to give you a specific example we were in a group setting with a lot of reporters around i had because i'm with the local television i had better access you know the, the rights holder and so i was able to usually do a couple of questions in the beginning and we would package that into um you know, a bit that we would then play later. So it would be question, answer, question, answer. And we didn't have all these other media outlets there. And that was basically our one-on-one, even though it wasn't, wasn't really a one-on-one, but uh, it looked that way on television. So I can remember a scene where I asked him, you know, something about a practice. Uh, it was in the NBA playoffs. They were in the playoffs that year. We were still covering the early rounds. And I had asked them, they had lost a tough game. I believe it was to Utah. Um, and I had asked him, you know, what, what's morale at practice like today? And he just ripped me a new one, like in front of everybody. I mean, there's 20 people around him. And he said, I don't, <laughs> he said, I don't expect that kind of question coming from you. I expect it from all these other people, but not from you. <laughs> so not only did he shake me down, but he shook down everybody else around him at once in one sentence. And I didn't think anything of it. And he answered and everything's fine. We're fine. And then afterwards, he like whistled at me and brought me over and said, look, you, what, what kind of question is that? He goes, you know, you're asking me a question that it would require a one-word answer. He goes, be better. And I was like, okay, he's right, you know, so be better, you know, and you learn how to ask him proper questions. You, you don't ever ask him about himself. You ask him about his players. Tell me 
you know, what impact, where did the game turn in your opinion? What impact did Tim Duncan have in this game? There was a moment when you uh, changed your rotation. What was the thinking behind that? Like those are the impactful questions that he was willing to answer. And so I tried to tell people that as they would come along, as opposed to the open-ended question that would mean, boy, you guys played a great game. Must be fun to win this one. Or what did, what did it feel like to win? You know, kind of these throwaway questions that he's not interested in. So I learned a lot in those years. And, um, you know, he kind of, he kind of clipped all those thorns off me early. And I still use a lot of those principles that I learned dealing with him all these years later. So moving from San Antonio to Milwaukee, there's no replicable path and everybody gets where they get a different way. But usually you see people moving uh, from major markets to a little bit of a higher position inside the major market. What connection and what was the process of getting the Milwaukee Brewers gig? Yeah, there's no um, there's no real path. You're right, and for those listening here who who are in the business, don't don't ever try to emulate a path. It just doesn't happen. When I first started, I thought, okay, I'm here. I got this double A job. I'll go to triple A. I'll go to the major leagues. It just doesn't work that way. You go where you go. Um, from Milwaukee to or from San Antonio to Milwaukee was actually there was a spot in between. So from San Antonio. I remained with the Spurs, but then I, I took a job with the golf channel and that was a really important job for me. Uh, I did that four years and loved doing golf and had never done golf before until I started doing golf tournaments with golf channel, a golf channel. But that was an important piece because it was the first big job. I had real salary, you know, where I was actually on a salary that could, you know, make a good living doing this, this job. That was a big breakthrough uh, for me, even though I'd done the NBA on the sideline for years. That was a, a contract, you know, my first multi-year contract I ever had. So the the Brewers came up because, you know, I had always sent tapes and always wanted to pursue major league broadcasting jobs. And I was doing that as I was working for the Spurs, working for Golf Channel, and been turned down just, I don't even know how, I mean, uh, hundreds is probably a good number, hundreds of times um, for major league. I really couldn't even get major league interviews even. You know, I think I got a couple of interviews early and never really got to the interview where I could travel to the city and get in front of somebody. So that all changed when Milwaukee came about and uh, it was going through the fall of 2006 uh, they had a job open. There was a link for me. It was Matt Vaskersian. He was a good friend of mine. We'd worked in the Texas League together. He had worked in Milwaukee at this time. He was in San Diego. But he had known that they were looking to hire a, an announcer, TV or radio. Wasn't sure which. So I had sent demo materials. And, and you know, it just it kind of started with a phone call. And that advanced. I think there was maybe... 180 applicants, I think they said, and then it got down to a hundred and then it was, you know, 50 and then it was 20 and then it was a phone interview. And then it was, you know, it just kind of went, you know, every couple of weeks there was a, I just kept advancing to the next level um, while I was doing golf tournaments. So you'll have to ask the brewers on that process, but 
I just kept surviving. And on Christmas Eve of 2006, you know, I got the, the dream offer to work for a major league baseball team. And I, of course I ex- accepted and resigned from the golf channel, um, and the Spurs. And that's when I started, uh, with the Brewers in 2007, April of 2007. What's it like not working directly with, but working for the same team as Bob Uecker? Yeah, well, he, he was actually one of the guys. There was another link, uh, Bob Uecker. I didn't know him, but we had a mutual friend. Um, one of his running buddies was the general manager of the Hyatt Hotels, his name is Murray Burnett, and he was a great friend of mine. And I had worked all those years in the minor leagues, backing up a step. <laughs> I had worked in the off-season at the Hyatt Hill Country Resort. I worked in the golf industry, uh, running corporate tournaments and making tea times. And I love golf, and I just wanted to be around it. And it was just a good side job, an hourly wage job. But I got to know this guy, Murray Burnett, really well. And he was friends with Bob Uecker. So when this Brewers thing started rolling, I asked Murray if he would ask Bob just for a recommendation. And I think he did call. Say, the way he puts it is I called him. I said, I don't know this guy, but you might just want to give him a look. So there was a piece to that. And so when I got the job, I think you had some say in that. Uh, ultimately, even though we weren't working together on television, but being uh, being in the same space as Bob Uecker and just you know, right away when I got the job, I remember the first road trip we took, we were down in Miami and uh, he invited me to go play golf and we went out and played and we just had this amazing conversation where he laid out the the lay of the land with the Brewers, not really talking broadcasting, but just more, this is how this works. Here's the structure. Here's who is important. Here's who matters in our organization and the ownership group and and then kind of the rhythm of existing with a team, you know, that team. I had done that for years with, in the minor leagues, but it's different, you know, in the major leagues. So he was very helpful in that. And then, you know, just to be with him, and I was never on the air with him. He does radio, I do TV, but, you know, he's a, he's a comedic genius, first of all. And then he's a great broadcaster, Hall of Fame broadcaster. He never talks mechanics. He would be horrified to even sit through the conversation you and I have been having today about voice mechanics and all that. That's all so natural to him. He doesn't, he never thinks about it. He still considers himself a player. He's part of the players association. You know, he, he's got a locker in the clubhouse. It's, he's not into it for that yet. He's great at it. And so those lines are drawn pretty quickly and, you know, it's a joy to be around him. I mean, he can be, tough at times you know he's an extremely famous person and people come at him a lot at any time of the day no matter where he's at so it's tough being bob Uecker at times i think being the kind of celebrity he is especially in milwaukee um everybody wants a piece of him everybody wants him to voice over things and leave messages on their phones and do all the things that the celebrities get asked to do take pictures and whatnot it's a steady stream for him um, but where he's at home the most is when he's sitting down calling a baseball game and a Brewers game specifically. So we that's had, really cool that he's uh, doing that. We had Lane Grindle on a p- earlier podcast, yeah. and he said that 
you're not really involved until he makes you laugh on the air and just lose it. And I know you said you've never yeah. actually been on the air, but is there a a similar story with you maybe at an event or uh, at some other venue where he's made you just lose your mind laughing during inside a situation where you shouldn't? Uh, that That's happened all the time. I mean, I say I'm not on the air. He's on radio. I'm on TV. But he will frequently come join us on television. We'll put him on a headset in between us, and we'll do an inning or two, and we do that all the time. And, of course, uh, there are moments like that that happen all the time. What are I mean, a couple entire, specific ones? His bed is, I mean, you know, when, when he was going through all of his illness illnesses, when he had the heart issue and, you know, he would say things like, hey, uh, you know, I just – Hey, welcome, Bob. Great to have you here. Oh, great. I'm glad to be here. I'm full of pig valves. I hope I don't take a Dixie on you. I mean, it just stuns you. And you're, it's not funny coming from me, but it's funny coming from him. But the way I remember, uh, you know, we were talking about Prince Fielder once. We were on the air and uh, Prince Fielder comes to the plate. And it's a shot of waist up of Prince Fielder striding to home plate. And he goes, wow, put some shoes on those, those arms, will you, Prince? And it just kind of passed by me. But then I'm thinking, wait, what did he just say? <laughs> and he's talking about the size of his arms. They, they're the size of legs. Put shoes on his hands. You know, put some shoes on those hands. Because it is, those arms are so big. It's like you've got to really concentrate to follow his humor. Um, I mean, we, we went through um, a, a whole scene of the – the, 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 a player that used to play for the Brewers, his name was Joe Winkle's ass. <laughs> so you can imagine where that would go. <laughs> there was a whole bit with Todd Coffey when he would come running in. And, yeah, I don't, I don't even want to go there, but he would say stuff on the air. It's like, you know, he got to strap those down because Todd would sprint from the bullpen. He's kind of a big guy. Yeah. I mean, there's been times when I've had to take the headset off and just take a walk for a minute. Uh, I, there's too many to count. I, can't, I wish I could give you a specific example, but um, there's too many. And he's so funny. And those bus rides, when he was traveling full-time, well, those bus rides to the ballpark was the greatest 20-minute comedy show you could ever experience. And it was probably five of us on the bus, typically, on that second bus, you know, with just the media, maybe the starting pitcher. But, oh, my goodness. Uh, his mind is incredibly sharp. He's a, he's so funny to be around. You've been fortunate enough to be on the call for some really big moments. The ones that jump out to me, uh, Ryan Braun's home run on uh, game 162. You did Trevor Hoffman's uh, record-setting save. You were uh, with Sister Jean watching Loyola Chicago. Uh, Roy Halladay's no-hitter in the playoffs. What is the key to capturing a big moment for you? Kind of go full circle where we started. You know, the key for me is to, at some level, acknowledge what this moment is and how, what number you're going to assign it. Like, I work better if I can assign it a number, as we've talked about. So Roy Halladay, we get to the ninth inning. I mean, that's a 10. We're, we're in 10 territory, right? And if he completes the no hitter, then we're, we're, I'm going there. I'm, I'm going to get loud and hopefully I'm going to be 
smart enough to lay out too and just let the crowd be a part of it. So every moment that's in front is really boils down to that scale um, that we talked about earlier. And that keeps things for me, it, it, it keeps me in the process as opposed to thinking big picture, like, Oh my God, they're going to play this call forever and don't screw it up. Like I can't go there. I will screw it up because <laughs> you get, you get wrapped up in the axle mentally when you start going there. So if I can just stay, this moment is a big moment. It deserves an eight. And it just, it's very matter of fact. It's that simple in my brain. It's a quick thought. Give it an eight, give it a 10, give it a six. If he doesn't get get it, drop down to a five. I mean, that's how I do it. And staying in the process that way, it's kind of like the assembly line, you know. It's the Laverne and Shirley uh, metaphor. You know, the beer bottles are going by, and that's the plays. And you're just chipping away at them, and then you covered them up and whatever they are, and you're just calling it. And then sometimes you need to give it a little more and a little more attention. That, that's where the numbers come up, come up. So if I can stay in the now that way with that philosophy, then I don't have time to be nervous. I don't have time to be fearful that I may ruin this moment. Um, and because those are real fears. And that usually in the seconds, minutes after, that's when I'm really at my worst thinking, wow, that was a huge how did I call it? Did I screw it up? What are people going to say about it? Um, and so those are like the most vulnerable moments when you go back and listen. I'll, I'll give you an example. I did a game, uh, VCU in Indiana, and it was uh, Indiana won the game to go to the Sweet 16. And I remember Victor Oladipo drove down, um, and Will Sheehy made the shot to win the game, basically. And Victor Oladipo was driving, and he got a shot blocked. And the block shot ended up in the hands of Will Sheehy from about eight feet. And he made a little soft mid-range jumper and put Indiana ahead. They went on to the Sweet 16. And I can remember going back to the hotel after that game, and we were all gathering. Uh, Steve Smith was my partner that year. And I asked Steve, I go, can you believe Victor Oladipo's pass in crunch time like that? And Steve Smith looked at me like, what are you talking about? He got a shot blocked. And I, I mean, I went white as a ghost, man. I was horrified. I thought I'd blown it because I, I know I didn't even remember what I said. The sequencing of the game was just, I was just calling it instinctively, not thinking. And I immediately went to the, it was right in the beginning of the March Madness app where you could watch the highlights, which I don't really do right away, but I did here. I immediately went to that on my laptop and I watched and listened to this highlight paranoid that I had blown this call and I didn't, I called it a block shot. I, I, I don't remember the call, but it was like Oladipo drives shot blocked into the hands of Sheehy. Sheehy scores and Indiana has the lead. And I'm thinking to myself, it's just, it's 20 minutes from that moment. And I'm here saying what a pass. It's like totally different out of body experience to be able to call it. And then, as now a fan, normal person, not doing a broadcast, think about what I said. I have no idea what I said. And that's usually what happens in the biggest moments. You kind of forget it. And I've talked to Vern Lundquist about this. Vern Lundquist has never watched 
the Christian Leitner shot, you know, the Grand Hill pass, the Leitner shot to beat Kentucky. He's never watched the game. He's seen the highlight and heard the highlight, but he's never watched the game because he says, I don't, I know I made some mistakes in that game and I don't want to, I don't want to have it ruined. <laughs> but those of us who watch the game and who've seen it many times on replay, he didn't make a mistake any in that game ever. I mean, he was flawless. He was amazing. So we all kind of feel that way. We know what we're thinking and we know what, but we don't necessarily always know what we're saying in the big moments. So it's, always a little dangerous for us to uh, walk out of there thinking, man, what happened? <laughs> what did I just say? Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of how you have to think about it. I believe just at, stay in the moment. At what point in Roy Halliday's no hitter, did you call it a no hitter? I said it to Joe Simpson in the third inning off the air. And I said it on the air in the fifth inning. And from every half inning on. And then uh, Jay Bruce drew a walk in the fifth. And uh, we went to break. I think that was the first time I said it. When we, we, we went to commercial and I said, I think I said, uh, perfect game over, no hitter still intact. Because he had obviously gotten out of the inning. Jay Bruce was left stranded. And then every other inning, I don't believe in the no-hitter jinx, obviously. So I was, I mean, that was a huge moment. People were just figuring, we were all, we, I think we hit the air that day at 4 o'clock Eastern. So that thing was coming to a crescendo right in the middle of prime time, you know. Maybe it was 5 o'clock Eastern, actually. So the audience was growing exponentially. People had not certainly been watching from first pitch on. They're getting all the alerts, the notices. And uh, we, we are going back, giving context. This was a play. There wasn't really that many dangerous moments to lose the no-hitter. Uh, matter of fact, Travis Wood had the, the closest hit uh, player to to actually breaking up the no-hitter. He was the pitcher who came in. He was the relief pitcher, and he got an at-bat, and he had a line drive, and Jason Worth made a sliding catch in right field. That was as close as they got. And we were recapping a lot of this, knowing people were coming to this broadcast. Uh, so we a lot more recaps than we would normally do. And I, I was constantly saying that, look, this is a no hitter going on the Vin Scully theory of calling no hitters in perfect games, which he did more than anybody. What was uh, it like? So, what was it like calling that big home run for Ryan Braun in game one sixty two, and then doing the NLDS broadcast on a national platform <laughs> where you couldn't necessarily root for the Brewers like you do in literally every other game during the season. Well, again, and this, I've, I've gone around this horn a few times, but it, it goes back to the scale. So Ryan Braun's game 162 home run against the Cubs which put him in the lead in the bottom of the eighth inning with Sabathia still on the mound to finish the game. They weren't touching Sabathia. It's almost like it was a walk-off, even though it wasn't. It, it could have been. And for all intents and purposes, it was. So in that moment, um, this is 2008 now, and I'm saying, I mean, if he drives in this run or hits a home run here, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Like, it's a 10. Because this team hasn't, this franchise hasn't seen a playoff since, 
in 26 years, since 1982, they'll have a chance to do it, at least in a tiebreaker at that point of the game. The Mets were still playing at that point. So you couldn't definitively say, you know, they're, they're, they're the wild card team. They had the Mets won their game. They would have gone into a playoff, a tiebreaker the next day, but the Mets lost. And so half hour after the game, it was the moment where they made it. So anyway, I'm all in. I'm a 10, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it all I got. I think my voice cracked on that one. I actually tried to push it to an 11 <laughs> and there was no 11. So spinal tap reference, but I didn't have an 11. So my voice cracked and I went Peter Brady on the uh, call, <laughs> but the, um, the next broadcast I do is now game one of the Brewers Phillies, uh, in LDS. So, I had, there was two National League division series and I got assigned to the Brewers, of course, which I was hoping I wasn't going to be put on the Brewers. I was actually hoping to do the other one, but that's just the way they wanted it. And so I had to kind of re regroup and for the first time call the team I'd been with all year on a national game in the playoffs. And so again, goes back to the scale. You're not going to give a, any moment in that series a 10 call because it's a division series. It's there's still a championship series and a world series. And even though you're at citizens bank park and Shane Victorino hits a grand slam, that's a big moment, but I'm capping that at an, at an eight, you know, I didn't give it the full Ryan Braun treatment, nor what I do it the other way. The Brewers did win game three of that series at Miller park. And there was no call in that, that I gave it a 10 call. There was no, there was no Brewer moment, even though a week before I would have certainly done that. Um, there was no call in that series that I, that I got really loud and, you know, gave it a 10 call. So it's back to the scale. Um, the scale has saved me all these years, man. It's, it's just the thing that I'm, I'm constantly aware of. And I'm constantly thinking about when I'm calling these games, you know, and, and that applies to if you're doing it for a team and you're representing that team and you're on a Brewers broadcast versus a national broadcast. So the, the scale applies and the same, the same moment uh, um, would be a 10 on a Brewers broadcast would only be an eight on a national broadcast, you know, and then it's got to be an eight for, for a big moment by the opposing team or by the, the opponent of the Brewers, you got to raise that up. That would on a Brewers broadcast, that would be a five, you know, and it's got to be an eight because it matters. Uh, did you, did you get any pushback from either fan base? Oh, you always do. That's a, that's a, that's the name of it. You get more blowback from your own market, from the market you're in most of the year. So Milwaukee fans are really, disappointed in me um, because they've heard me not get excited about an Albert Pujols home run in the NLCS. They've heard me not get excited about an Albert Pujols homer against the Brewers, but in this setting, I have to be, and I want to be because it's, it's a big moment. I've got a national broadcaster hat on at that point. And that's, you know, you're not a fan at that point as a play by play announcer. You're, you're calling the moment and you're attaching the scale again to that play. Like you're attaching your intensity, volume, pitch, tone, 
everything to what the moment requires. And so you're not even thinking that way as a fan. I'm not rooting. I'm not like, oh, man, I hope the Brewers do something great here. I'm not. I'm just calling it. I'm, I'm, I'm calling it step-by-step, play-by-play. And then when the game ends, it's like, oh, shoot, the Brewers had a chance to win, and they didn't, you know? So that's really – you get a lot of it from fans. I still hear from fans, you know, that were upset when I called three wins in the, of the Phillies in that series in 2008 or the four wins of the Cardinals in the 2011 NLCS. And then obviously, you, you know, you're going to be seen as the homer by the other team because they know you want for the Brewers, but that that's just the nature of the business. It everybody's got to come from so somewhere. Joe Buck deals with that every year. Every time he called a Cardinal game, Ben Scully dealt with it. You know, he did the World Series. He did a ton of World Series with the Dodgers when he was the principal announcer for the Dodgers, including the '88 World Series. So that's just the nature of the beast. It, it's fun. Baseball fans are probably more offended by that than other sports just because they hear their own announcers for six and a half months. Well, let's wrap this up with a couple of the final questions that I ask for everybody. And it's what are some of your broadcast horror stories? And I imagine being in the minor leagues uh, with a low budget paying you 25 bucks a game that there's quite a few moments where you were in just a really bizarre broadcast location or all of your equipment took uh decided not to work simultaneously it could be anything what's yours um those those all happen those are all things that certainly have happened i've broadcast game a game from the stands you know, because there wasn't enough room in the booth for the equipment, the analyst, and the play-by-play guy. So I put an extension on the cable and walked out literally into the stands in a high school football game. Um, I've been down to one microphone before during a telecast with Tommy John. And so Lolly popped the microphone back and forth. Um, there's been games in my – I soldered a headset in the middle of a game once. I called the game as lightning hit the foul pole in Midland and the headset blew up. So uh, I called the game on a phone that I taped upside down on a mic stand, the old phone, you know, and I call, that's how I called the game. And then while the game was going on, I was soldering the headset back together. The pin had popped off, the ring tip pin part of the headset, the pin part of it. <laughs> so I had to get the headset back working again. Um yeah, and then, you know, the, some of the things you've, you've said, you know, like I've said uh, on the air, things I didn't mean to say, um, which are always funny, and we all have our all have our moments, you know, on the air. So those would probably be the at the top of the list. Who are some of your favorite broadcasters to listen to if you're in the car on a day off and you can just uh, tune through the dial and pick something? I think it's different now for me. Back in the day, it would have been I would have certainly sought out broadcasters like Vin Scully or Ernie Harwell or Chick Hearn um, of the Lakers. You know, those, those would have been Pat Summerall. I love. I always loved watching football games with Pat Summerall. Just the minimalistic view of it. Nowadays, it's you know, 
I'll, I'll never really watch a game the same again. You, you just get to a point where when you've done this in this business for so long, you don't watch games as a fan, really. You just don't. You, <laughs> you're constantly thinking about, what would I have said there? What, how's he doing it here? So I don't really do that. I, I appreciate the journey of everybody from guys just starting out to guys that have been around forever. So if I'm bumping around, but I am a junkie on it, you know, I love taking drives and, you know, XM radio is really XM serious has been able to bring back a lot of radio calls. And I love just bumping around the dial, just like I used to when I was a kid, you know, instead of the scratchy AM dial, you can just pop around digitally and I will, I will bounce game to game. I was just uh, in the car the other day and listening to, all kind of uh, conference tournaments that were going on, just like clicking, clicking, and just to hear it, you know. So I, I wouldn't say there's any favorites, you know. There's no, I mean, I'll listen to a Bob Euchre baseball game any day when I'm off and sitting on the back porch or at the pool or whatever. I, I love having that on the radio, having him come through you know, the radio, so or XM. But yeah, there's nobody that I'm seeking out. Uh, a lot of the games that I watch at this point, and I do a lot of sports throughout the year, I'm watching for prep. So I'm going to be filing back and listening and watching a lot of video over the next few days on the eight teams that I have in the tournament. And, you know, I'll be really curious to see who those announcers are. I'm always kind of filing those announcers away, especially if they're my buddies, you know, like the Dave Fleming calls a lot of games. Um, for ESPN and, and Dan Schulman or um, Jason Benetti, you know, a lot of those guys that were calling conference tournament, tournament championships. Um, I'll be listening to. All right. For the ninth consecutive year, Turner and CBS will bring fans all 67 games of the tournament across TBS, CBS, TNT, and true TV with digital coverage of every game available via March madness live Brian Anderson will call this year's tournament games through the regional finals, and he has been the guest today on the Say the Damn Score podcast, the voice of the Milwaukee Brewers on TV. And Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure to be with you. Good chat. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, which can also be found on saythedamscore.com. Remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing your stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.